Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's episode of Engendered, our guest is Dr. Tanya Yovanovitch, Director of the Grady Trauma Project and Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University. Dr. Yovanovitch's current research program focuses on the interaction of traumatic experiences, neurophysiology, neuroendocrinology, and genetic risk factors and mental disorders in adults and in children in high-risk populations. We will be speaking to Dr. Yovanovitch about her work and its application to children witnessing abuse and its impact on their health development and future risk factors, which characterizes it as the same risk of harm to them as if the children had been abused directly. Dr. Yovanovitch's research has wide-ranging implications for how courts and policymakers are treating intimate partner violence in new program pilot interventions, especially in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Yovanovitch. Hi, how are you? I'm good, and thank you for being on our show. Thank you for having me. To begin with, I'd like to give our listeners some context to your work. You were featured recently in an USA Today article entitled, Children Who See Abuse Suffer as Much as Those Abused. And the subtitle was, Witnessing Abuse Carries the Same Risk of Harm to Children's Mental Health and Learning as If the Children Had Been Abused Directly. And the article actually refers to the finding, rather, as quote-unquote startling. As director of the Grady Trauma Project, you've been studying the effects of trauma on the body and its risk for future health outcomes. Those of us who work in public health and working with children and survivors of domestic violence and intimate partner violence have been very familiar with the ways in which ACEs or adverse childhood experiences increases health risks in children. What were your thoughts about this article and the fact that it has been characterized as startling? Well, I actually thought that I think it is startling. But one of the reasons that I thought it was kind of clever use of the word startle, because that's actually a lot of what I do in my research, is that I use the startle reflex as one of the ways that we measure the body's response. And so we actually can measure muscle contractions to loud sounds. And people startle, you know, different levels. You can startle a little or a lot, but people startle a lot when they're afraid or anxious. And that's true of all animals. So we actually have this test that was developed on rodent models and also tested in other animals that we use in humans, both adults and children. And it's a very safe measurement, but it's a way to measure how anxious or afraid someone is without relying on them telling you how anxious or afraid they are. Because sometimes they, for whatever reasons, don't really want to emphasize their feelings about things. Or sometimes they're not even really aware about how anxious or afraid they might be. What are you measuring when you're measuring that term? Is, it, is there a physical response, as in literally someone can be visibly moved? Yes, yes. So... The way we measure it is we put electrodes under the eye and it measures the eye blink muscle. 
And so when you hear a really loud noise, you blink your eyes. And when your eyes blink, the contraction of that muscle produces a voltage signal. And we can measure that voltage. And so that way we can actually quantify fear because we can look at you know, the size of that voltage signal when someone's really afraid and when someone's not afraid. And are there additional measurements such as heart rate or is it just the physiological response of the eye muscle? Well, so yeah, we have many different ones. So we do heart rate in addition to the eye blink reflex. So we look at heart rate and we also look at skin conductance. And skin conductance measures sweat gland activity. So also when you're really nervous, you'll sweat a lot. So that's another physical measurement that we can take to measure how anxious someone is or nervous. And then, of course, in my lab, we do a lot of brain imaging. So we can actually take both pictures and more like a video of what's happening in the brain when we do different things. And because we're really interested in how both childhood and adult experiences of interpersonal violence affect the brain and affect people's fear response, then the way we look at the brain is to show kind of fearful images. And we're also looking at how the brain reacts to that. So these are all different measures of looking at how someone's biology and neurobiology might be sensitized to fear stimuli in their environment. And it's really one of the ways in which people then have trouble functioning in their daily lives because they're constantly afraid of everything. Mm -hmm. And your research in particular focuses on the effects of trauma from exposure to violence, including from abuse or sexual abuse, and its impact on individual parenting and or the physiological impacts on, on children. So, for example, your research paper titled Exposure to Violence Accelerates Epigenetic Aging in Children. In that study, you looked at children ages 6 to 13 and their exposure to neighborhood violence impacted their heart rate during a stressful task. Could you share in layperson's terms the findings from that study and its significance and also define epigenetic? Yes. (laughs) Epigenetic is, just in layman's terms, the turning on and off of genes. So, you know, everybody's DNA, you're born with your genes the way they are, and they don't change. Your genetic code does not change in your lifetime. But what does change is which genes are active. And for them to actually have effects, for genes to make proteins, for proteins to then, you know, whether they end up being neurotransmitters or cells in the body, whatever they do, they have to be turned on to even produce that protein. So epigenetics really refers to the activation of genes. And we can look at, because DNA is activated through your lifetime, there's a very nice association between how much activation of your DNA is present and your chronological age, you know, how old you are. But we can also look at DNA and by using that measure of epigenetics, we can tell whether your body thinks you are older than you really are. And that's what we refer to as accelerated aging or accelerated epigenetic aging in this case, which means that the DNA is 
active more and it's behaving as if you're aging at an accelerated pace. And so a lot of studies have found that stress accelerates aging biologically, physiologically. Most of those studies are done in adult or aging populations. So Vietnam veterans or combat veterans, where we know that, you know, someone maybe in their 50s might look in terms of their medical health conditions like they're in their 70s. So we say there's not just accelerated aging, but accelerated illness and high risk. And this is just the effect of chronic stress on the body. So we've known that for a while. But what we've never really seen is, does this happen in children as well? Are children already kind of set on this trajectory of accelerated aging where they're going to especially accumulate this with time? And it really speaks more to the vulnerability. One of the things we found in that paper was that it really mattered whether the children directly experience the violence. So we measure both things that they experience, like if someone hits them versus seeing someone else being hit. Like in the neighborhood, they see people fighting. And it really, when they experienced it versus witnessed it, it was the experiencing that really accelerated that aging. And when we looked at their heart rate, and so these are young children, they're not sick, right? They don't have heart attacks. They don't have diabetes. They don't have any of the illnesses that we typically see in older adults. But what we did see is that our children, so we recruited children between 6 and 13. So none of the children in our sample were chronologically older than 13. But we had a subset whose DNA looked like they were between 14 and 17. So it estimated them to be about three years older than they actually were. And those kids, when we looked at their heart rate, their heart rate looked like they were adults. So they looked like they were, when we looked, compared them to the adults in our samples, they looked like they were 18 to 25. And again, it wasn't an unhealthy heart rate, but it suggests that those same kids are now at risk, you know, at a later time in life, starting to develop maybe cardiovascular disease or other conditions that would be premature for their age. So I think the thing that's striking about that is that really children, especially growing up in violent neighborhoods and violent homes, are you know at risk not just of mental health problems, but many physical illnesses as well. And you know, ultimately a shortened lifespan. And not necessarily due to violence, which is another big reason why they do have shortened lifespans. Have you in that study or other studies differentiated the ways in which your subjects in the study responded to trauma? So to the extent that someone might, you know, shut down and have a more sort of removed emotional response, um, would that physiologically protect them in a way from having that level of impact on their body? because they're more disassociative in a way? That's a really, it's an interesting question because a lot of people think that this blunted response might be a coping strategy of sorts, maybe not even an intentional one in adults. In the kids, we don't typically see that. Um, For one, at this age range that we were studying, 
the children didn't have PTSD. They didn't have symptoms of PTSD. These are all things that will happen later. So when we, and this is part of a longitudinal study, we'll keep following the kids, but I think it won't even be in the next three years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. So we don't know when the actual symptoms will happen, and we don't know whether having a blunted physiological response in childhood would be protective. Mm -hmm. I suspect not. What we do see a lot, and especially teenagers, is that they say they're not as anxious or worried or, you know, that I think in our sample, especially what we see a lot is that the violence is very normalized. So our kids will say, well, yeah, I've heard gunshots, but you know, that doesn't bother me. We see that a lot. We'll see kids kind of not really almost being phased by someone getting arrested on their street or you know, a lot of the fighting that they see because it's just become part of just their normal environment. So in that particular study, you concluded that the effects of violence were actually inconclusive in terms of the exposure on aging leading to adverse outcomes, but you did recommend identifying these early biomarkers of aging in order to prevent accelerated aging. And you mentioned that epigenetic changes can be reversed through a variety of social interventions. Can you provide some yeah. examples of those interventions that might be effective? Yeah, yeah. This is one of the most interesting things I'd read. And I didn't know about this study until I read it for this paper. But there's a group that was studying African-American families in rural Georgia and they did a parenting intervention that was called Strong African-American Families. And this happened many, many years ago. They took, I believe, a blood sample from nine-year-old children and then those same children when they were 20 years old. And they did an intervention in the nine-year-olds where half of the group were put into this like parenting intervention. And mostly what they did is they really looked at harsh parenting or harsh discipline, which is really, I think, physical discipline often kind of borders with physical abuse. And where you draw the line can be very cultural. And so it's when you talk about physical discipline, it's likely that if you were in a different context, it would definitely be thought of as abuse. But in order to I think maybe not, they wanted these people to stay in their study. They wanted the intervention to work. So they did a study, and this is, uh, the first author of this study is, is Brody. So they did this intervention, and they looked at epigenetic aging at age nine and then at age 20. And the kids who had this parenting intervention showed the reversal of the accelerated aging. So they kind of got back on track. Because epigenetics are very sensitive to environmental impact. They're sensitive to stress in their environment, but they're also sensitive to the buffering of good parenting. And so a lot of the epigenetic things we see can actually be reversed. And that's what they found. So they found that, that if you, you know, kind of train parents not to employ harsh discipline in their parenting, then their children between ages 9 and 20 look a lot different. 
does that take into account the fact that these children may have adopted different coping mechanisms to respond to the initial trauma? So to the extent that someone is emotionally shut down or, as I mentioned earlier, disassociated, do they need Mm -hmm. to be re-engaged in a different way first before the intervention can be effective? Or does the intervention itself address the the emotional state or openness? That's a really good question. I don't know, you know, what they did in terms of measuring dissociation or detachment in those kids prior to the intervention. I think the kids were randomized to the intervention. And then the, so I don't know that they would have specifically selected those kids. I'm guessing some of them probably would have been. Okay, so I want to turn to another research study. This one entitled, Physiological Markers of Anxiety Are Increased in Children of Abused Mothers. And here, the study was on the childhood emotional and or physical abuse of mothers and whether it had an impact on their children and the intersection of abuse being passed down intergenerationally. What did you find there? So we found that when we looked at maternal abuse when she was a child, so much before she was pregnant with the child that was in our study, if she had had sexual or physical abuse as a child, then her child showed that increased startle response that I talked about in the beginning. So that one, we measured how much someone blinks and we can deliver the sounds that make someone blink either in the light or in the dark. And when you turn the lights off, then you just naturally blink more because darkness is kind of scary. And everybody blinks a little bit more, but the degree to which you blink more is associated with how anxious you are. And again, it's it's really a biological measure of anxiety or biomarker of anxiety. So we found that kids, again, this was school-age kids, you know, eight to 10-year-old kids, blink a lot more if their mothers were abused as children. And we looked at things like, was it, you know, did the child's own trauma exposure have an effect? And so we controlled for direct exposure to the child. We controlled for whether the mom had PTSD or whether the mom had depression. And none of those things actually made a difference. So even after controlling for all of those things, Maternal childhood trauma and her abuse increased this biomarker of anxiety in her kids. In a later study, we actually did look at parenting, and it was associated with parental warmth or parental distress. So it is related to maternal behavior in some way, in that moms who were abused as children behave differently as parents. But there also may be a biological component like this epigenetic component, because that could be one of the ways in which trauma could be transmitted from one generation to the next in this biological pattern. So you said you controlled her PTSD and depression. Does Mm -hmm. that mean by inference that setting aside the fact that the study was on maternal childhood abuse, if there was maternal domestic violence, but no, let's say, maternal childhood abuse and the domestic violence, emotional, physical, whatever, was extensive prior to the woman becoming pregnant, are you saying that 
the PTSD from that experience and or the depression would not have had the same impact. Right. So the kid's anxiety was not a result of whether the mom had PTSD or not. Okay. Are there studies that look at that connection? Maternal PTSD. And 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 depression, yeah. yeah. Like due to domestic violence. There are several studies that have found that that intergenerational. So the more famous ones where people looked at children of Holocaust survivors and so not so much in the realm of domestic violence. Most of these studies have been either in refugee populations. There was a study with Rwandan refugees. And the idea there is that the mother's experience is very different from the child's experience because the mother survived atrocities that all happened prior to the birth of this child that was born in the U.S. And still, those children are at higher risk of having PTSD themselves or depression after controlling for many factors. So there does seem to be a transgenerational effect. I think there's still a lot of debate about how much of that is biology or how much of it is that women with a lot of trauma parent differently. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the studies that have focused on the impact of poverty and the intergenerational transmission of psychopathology have shown that maternal PTSD and depression increase anxiety in that in the first and second generation offspring, like you said, likely due to both behavioral and biological mechanisms. What are some of the ways in which a mother can alter her response to her child and parent differently? Well, one of the factors that we've found to be really important is maternal warmth. And we measure that different ways. And one of the ways we do it is just by questionnaire. And so we ask a lot of questions and it extracts a sort of warmth measure. But that's based on maternal report. You know, a lot of moms aren't going to necessarily say that they're not warm parents. So there's a bias in in a lot of that. We call that like self-report, you know, self-report bias, what you talk, say about yourself. And that's the problem with pretty much every questionnaire out there. But one of the other ways that we measure it is we have this game that mom and kids play in our study. And they have to, it's kind of a challenging Etch-a-Sketch game. And if you remember what an Etch-a-Sketch was before the digital age, Mm -hmm. it has two dials. And one draws a vertical line and the other one draws a horizontal line. And in this game, the mom controls one dial and the kid controls the other dial. And they have to cooperate to create this increasingly complex design. And they have five minutes to do it, and they're videotaped, and then that video is then coded. And in that, you can see a lot of maternal behavior in this. It's slightly stressful, not that much. Nothing bad's going to happen if they don't do well on this. But the moms can either, you know, blame their kids for the mistakes they make, or they can encourage the kids to do well. You know, there's very subtle interactions about how moms talk to their kids in this task. And we found that if a mom is very critical of their kid, even in just this playing this game, that is related to the kids being more anxious. It's also related to their higher startle response. We found that 
moms who show positive affect during this task. So when they're like more encouraging, complimentary, saying nice things to their kids, that actually changes the kid's brain activity to fearful stimuli. So that study just came out. We presented it, I think, in December, one of the postdocs in the lab. Or actually, now she's a professor. So Jenny Stevens presented this looking at brain activity in kids to facial stimuli. And they found that, or the study found that moms who were positive in this game, in the interaction task, had kids who didn't show as much fear. The brain centers regulating fear responses, the amygdala, didn't overreact as much as we typically see and kids from from our environment. So this references this research that you've done with regard to maternal buffering. You have a, a study called Maternal Buffering of Fear-Potentiated Startle in Children and Adolescents with Trauma Exposure. Can you talk about and define first what maternal buffering is and mm-hmm. what the findings were from that study? So that one, maternal buffering really refers to mom's and managing the stress response in their kids. So if whether it's the stress hormone release or how their body reacts, and this is true again across different species, is if a mother is nearby or close to the kid, then they won't have as much of a stress response. And that's what's referred to this buffering effect. And so we measured it again using the startle test And the way we did it was almost after the fact. We had already been doing this study for a while when I saw someone present at a conference a study where they manipulated whether the mom was next to her child or not when they did a test. And then I went back and I looked at our data, and we had just naturalistically had some moms who would get the same startle test right next to their kids, or if they had already done it, or for whatever reason, they would not do the test that day. They would go in a different room and do part of the questionnaires or interviews. So for about of the half of the kids, they could see their mom go into the startle booth right next to them. And what that means is that they didn't see them, they didn't hear them, They didn't have any direct connection with their mom, but they knew mom was there. Whereas in the other half of the kids, the mom left the room and they could see mom leaving. And they were told, you know, after this is over, you'll see your mom again. She's just going next door. But the kids whose mom was next to them when they did the startle test, they showed a lot less fear again. So that was really interesting to us because it wasn't that their mom was telling them not to be afraid. It was just the fact that she was close by that made them less afraid. And then we also looked at whether it mattered, whether the mom was a warm parent or not. And it's always better if the mom is warm, but whether or not she is close didn't matter so much whether she was warm or not. So basically saying that A mom who's typically not warm towards her child, that it was better to have her be close than her be far, even if she wasn't a warm parent. 
it was almost like, you know, kids, they'll attach to whoever is available, you know, and they don't necessarily know that their moms aren't warm or that they could be different. This is what the family they're born into. That actually was what I was thinking, the level of secure or insecure attachment that the children in the study may have had. Mm -hmm. Did you control for that? Were they all equally securely or securely attached? Or were there variations in that? And how was that measured? Yeah, uh, we, we did not look at attachment in the kids in that study. We looked at mom's parenting behavior, looking at the warmth. But we didn't look at the kids' attachment style. It's a little bit hard to capture that well in children. So a lot of the ways that we do it with questionnaires is we ask adults about different attachment styles. So we have not actually in our studies really been looking at attachment in kids. And were the people who were participating in this study, they were self-selected and were they all part of a complete nuclear family unit or could they have been single parents, et cetera, or even non-custodial parents? Over 80% of our participants are single mothers and almost all of them, 90% are biological mothers. Mm -hmm. And when they're not biological mothers, it's usually the grandma in most cases because mom, sometimes the mom just isn't available. Sometimes the mom is in prison. But in a lot of our families, the dads are not around. And sometimes because the dads are actually perpetrators of violence, we don't want them to be around. So we don't invite fathers in our studies. We do ask both the mom and the kid what kind of relationship they have with the father and how involved the father is. And so far in all of our studies, that particular variable of father involvement hasn't really made a big difference in what we've been looking at, looking at in terms of kid outcomes. But it's a little bit hard to measure that father involvement because a lot of times the fathers just aren't around. In the Grady population, a lot of the men are have multiple, you know, arrests and they're frequently just not around. And a lot of our moms will have different partners and children with different partners. So the way that they're selected for the study is really just from the waiting rooms at Grady Hospital. And Grady Hospital is public-funded hospital in downtown Atlanta. And it really serves people who don't have health insurance for the large part. So that kind of targets by, there's a selection bias for that and the, the patients at Grady are typically low-income minority families. And so it's hard to say, you know, it wouldn't be the typical nuclear family of you know, mom, dad, kid, sibling. In most cases, it's mom and lots of siblings. So I guess what I'm finding interesting about these studies and its application to the original article about children who suffer, who see abuse suffering as much as being abused directly, is its application to that population, which I know is not the that was originally studied, but a lot of people who, if we're going to apply, you know, these findings to other groups, a lot of people might argue, well, people who are 
advocates for survivors of domestic violence, you know, that the quote unquote perpetrator or abuser needs to be not part of or have a limited presence in the children's lives because of the impact. On the other hand, people might say, well, there haven't been studies to, these are isolating factors, so there haven't been studies to, to show what external influences might offset, you know, these physiological impacts on children. So if there's a woman who's, a mother who's been abused as a child, can the presence of a stable, loving other parent of whatever gender do enough to offset the negative impact or the risk to the child. And so that might be an argument for having the abuser in the life, one might argue, because that abuser is undergoing quote-unquote rehabilitation. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of the possibilities for applying your research to other areas. I would say... In our population, a lot of the women that we see come from very abusive relationships. And and because it's a cycle of violence, a lot of them will have been abused by their fathers. And then, you know, they grow up and they end up with men who abuse them. And I don't see how having the abusers present in the child's life would be a beneficial effect. I do agree that that having beneficial effects or beneficial people in a kid's life is really important, and it can, in fact, both buffer or reverse some of these detrimental effects. And so we have, you know, if a kid has a close relationship with a grandma or a pastor or, you know, someone else, a coach, there are other individuals who could have a very positive effect that are, you know, stable and caring, but someone who's an abuser to either the mom or the child itself, I don't see that would ever have a positive effect. So I want to bring in, I was recently at, in January, at an event sponsored by the New York City Bar Association And it was titled Enhancing Abusive Partner Interventions in New York City, Seeding Generations with New Strategies for Services. There was a study, we weren't privy to the details and findings of the study, that was conducted by the former executive director of a nonprofit agency in New York City who had continues to serve domestic violence survivors. And the study basically took into account the abuser's former history of trauma, such as from poverty or systemic racism. And Mm -hmm. so they wanted to, quote unquote, reframe interventions for people who cause harm. So this is using language under, you know, the transformative justice approach. And they cited a lot of quotes. They cited three quotes specifically by survivors of intimate partner violence. And I'm not going to go into the quotes now, but basically each of the quotes in some way or another expressed a desire on the part of the survivor to have interventions that help the abuser directly and keep the abuser in her life. There weren't any details as to how those people were chosen and what other interventions they may have sought that were unavailable to them, et cetera, and whether this was kind of a last choice. But the study basically proposed 
For example, there's two pilots, demonstration pilots in New York, um, where two prominent agencies in New York are going to be working directly with the survivor and the abuser and providing services and with the children, with the whole family unit, and including some sort of quote-unquote therapy. And so, you know, that to me as a survivor of domestic violence was a horrifying experience to be in that room and to to read, you know, these quotes of survivors being, I think, exploited. And I subsequently wrote a blog post about it. But I, I'm just curious, like, you know, hearing sort of that explanation and description that I just gave you, what are some of your thoughts as a human and then as a researcher? I mean, this is the the problem is that women who are in abusive relationships are often they're demoralized to the point where they're so dependent on on their abuser whether it's emotionally or financially and when they don't leave and there are barriers to leaving but usually those barriers are because of the abuser has some control whether it's financial or emotional saying that they want the person in their life to me is an expression of that control it's the same reasons why they can't always leave. And I think what's more supportive is supporting ways for them to develop independence and to promote the ability to leave. What do you say to these survivors who subscribe to the belief that they don't want their children to grow up without a father, even if he's abusive? I think partly maybe that's a My cynic in me is thinking that's a financial statement. But I think, again, from watching hundreds of kids growing up without fathers, I think having a very strong mother and having other strong people in the life, regardless of whether it's the father or not, is more important than having their father. If he's abusive, then all that's doing is teaching them that abuse is okay, that perpetuates then abuse in the next generation. I don't think that's a healthy perspective. And what are the implications of your research on policy with regard to addressing how systemic sexism impacts women's health? Because obviously you're focusing on, in some cases, community violence, neighborhood violence, but also childhood sexual violence and sexual Mm -hmm. abuse, but those are all obviously informed and impacted and enabled by the systems we live in. And so Mm -hmm. to what extent, and I'm thinking about this because of, you know, one of my favorite books from last year that I read is Soraya Chamali's book, Rage Becomes Her. And she, have you read the book? I haven't. Okay. I highly recommend it. It's very rich in basically sociological, psychological studies and research around the impact of sexism on our physiology on women's bodies and um, Uh emotions and in different settings and how it affects our choices and behaviors. And so I guess my question to you is, you know, how can your research be used and leveraged to influence policy and or additional funding to address systemic sexism? Yeah, I, uh, you know, we try to kind of stay 
in the realm of biology because mostly as a biologist, it's where I'm more comfortable and also where I feel like I can make a difference. And I would like for what we find to make policy changes, but that's where, you know, different people with different expertise come into the picture. All I can say is that we know that women are already biologically more vulnerable. They're more vulnerable to trauma. And then when you add to that uh, environment in which they are frequently traumatized, whether it's domestic abuse, whether it's childhood sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse, it just really potentiates this vulnerability. So it creates that intergenerational problem because these women then become mothers and then their daughters become mothers. And it just continues from generation to generation. And I don't really know how we stop that. All I can do is provide evidence of the impact. I'd like to turn to your team, the Grady Trauma Project team. There's various resources on the webpage, on the website, on different ways to respond to trauma and develop mindfulness and manage emotions. Actually, one part of the webpage quoted saying how to help avoid negative emotions. And I actually wanted to ask you about that because, you know, is avoidance the goal or is, you know, managing the, recognizing, acknowledging the emotion and and sort of managing it more appropriate? But I'm wondering, like, to what extent your team actually subscribes and practices and basically walks the walk of minimizing trauma in their lives or responding to trauma in effective ways. Yeah, so we have some of the people at Grady Trauma are clinical psychologists, which I'm not, but a lot of what one of the other investigators is interested in is emotion regulation and how regulation of emotion actually leads to better parenting, better navigation. So it's not necessarily avoiding negative emotions, but it is trying to regulate. And the resources that we have on the webpage, it is something that we do subscribe to. I I think avoiding emotion may sound problematic, but it's mostly thinking about, you know, emotions such as anger, aggression. You want to definitely manage or regulate those negative emotions. What we do at Grady Trauma Project to manage trauma, so we interview a lot of people with trauma histories, and that can often have an impact on the interviewer. People who do the interviews are typically students from, you know, Emory, Georgia State, Georgia Tech, Agnes Scott. A lot of the schools in Atlanta, the students want to get some experience with research, and they're really interested in in trauma. And so we do, you know, we do pretty extensive training before they go off and start asking people about trauma histories. But you can imagine that a kid who's now, you know, a sophomore at Emory, who's never really had anything bad happen to them, is walking up to a stranger in Grady Hospital, and the stranger then tells them about multiple instances of rape or seeing someone murdered or being abused by their stepbrother for years and years and years. This would have 
a pretty significant impact on the listener. In addition to, of course, the participant, what we found is that people more often than not will say, you know, or not more often than not, but often say, you know, I haven't told anybody this. Something about talking to a stranger can be very kind of freeing in some way. So what our interviewers do for one is that they always provide resources to, you know, whether it's organizations that can provide help financially, mentally. We have different mental health groups at Grady where they can see someone if they need to. And so we try to give the participants that we talk to about their lives resources. But then the other thing we do as a group is for those who are listening to the trauma, we talk a lot about self-care. So how, how did that impact you? What did you think about? How did you take care of your own emotions after hearing that? And so in that sense, I guess we, that's the walking the walk is, trying to provide resources to the participants in the study, but also to our interviewers as well. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. So we're at the point of our conversation, the end of each conversation with my guests. I ask a set of engendered questions that I've adapted from the Inside the Actor Studio James Lipton questionnaire. So the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression, in your opinion? What's at stake is, you know, the, not just the next generation, but really future generations. And it seems a little bit of a cliche to say, but I think that if this cycle of violence is not broken, then we never get out of it. And there's not really that much hope for the future if we don't break it. Which leads me to the next question. What gives you hope? Well, I think because there's more awareness, because we can reach out to people, because we can talk about parenting behavior and buffering behavior, what gives me a lot of hope is that so many people that we talk to who have had decades of horrible life experiences, but have had that one positive person in their life, because of that one positive person, they now aren't depressed or they don't have symptoms of PTSD. So people are tremendously resilient. And that also is a cliche, but it's a very big truth. We know, you know, even at Grady, where the trauma rates are just monumental and they seem like they're insurmountable, we still have more than half of the people we talk to are completely healthy in terms of PTSD and depression. So it's it's always really striking to see how resilient people are. And our last question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to address gender-based violence? I mean, I think for one, we can, I, I would not recommend staying with abusers. I think empowering women to be independent, to be stronger, to rely on their own strength, to know that having a strong mother is more important than having 
a negative father figure. I think having that empowerment and really having the conversation around the powerful impact that a strong, healthy mother can have on her child, I think is really important. Thank you so much, Dr. Yovanovitch. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.